It's been a full morning already. I'll tell you what, we have a, an opportunity on Easter Sunday, don't we, to, to figure out if what we say we believe really matters, right? Say if, if Jesus is really real or not, and Tell you, it makes a difference to me when I see uh, people who carry their faith through an entire lifetime right, and, and push out their faith to the next generation who continue to worship and sing and play in times of great difficulty. We have uh, members of the Souter family who are leading us in worship this morning and helping with that. And, for those who don't know, that's what I'm referring to. We have uh, a strong faith tradition passed down to us, don't we? Um, for those who are visiting, welcome to Grace Point Church. Uh, for those who have been here a while, um, many who have been here longer than I have, um, we stand on the shoulders of men and women who have gone before, uh, who the author of Hebrews writes, we're in a way surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who have testified and witnessed to things beyond our uh, current landscape and ministry. So we don't know what the future holds today, but we do know that we serve a God who is real, and we believe at Grace Point Church that we serve a Savior who is real, uh, and that it actually matters uh, for good. Okay, So... I'm going to try to pull myself together, all right? So let's, let's pull this. But this is all part of where we're going this morning. Um, in fact, I'm just going to ask for the lights as we're going to move past my original beginning um, and just go, go right into where we're at this morning. Um, you are here uh, Easter Sunday. We're glad to have you. Thanks for being here. If you're listening online later, thanks for listening online later. You are catching us at the beginning of a new series called Jesus, What If? And this series is essentially designed to get us just to stop um, and, and ask some questions um, about Jesus. Uh, whether you've been in church or you haven't been in church or whatever your background is, this series is not meant to convince you of things as much as it is meant simply to get you to stop and think again. Basically, what if? Just, just what if? Let's entertain the thought. What if what Jesus said about him was actually true? And what are the implications of that? And so, to begin, I want to talk to both um, churched people, that is people who are used to growing up in the church and, are, and have been around church for a long time, as well as those people who, who, who have not been in church. But here's what I need to define and describe. When we talk about Jesus, what if, the first thing we need to do is talk about what we mean when we use that word Jesus, okay, and who Jesus really is. So here's some assumptions, or if you will, <clears throat> some misconceptions about Jesus that often church people will have. When we use the word Jesus, um, a lot of times we move into different categories of things that may or may not be helpful in terms of our understanding of Jesus. First of all, uh, a lot of people think he's kind of like a good luck charm, okay? In other words, like if you're going out on a first date, you want to bring your Jesus with you, right? If you're about to take the exam you didn't study for, man, dear Jesus, help me, okay? And, you know, you're applying for the job, and you, man, and if only Jesus, you'll help me get this thing, then I'll whatever. And it's like, kind of the, the mass marketing of Jesus t-shirts and paraphernalia have kind of created this sense of, really, it's just kind of this spiritual good luck charm. That's what Jesus has become, and just kind of t- 
take him with you. You know, he's, he's a good one to have around. Wear the t-shirt, you know, at least if you're going to do that thing, okay? So Jesus is a good luck charm. Another misconception is basically that Jesus is our most sincere emotion. This one's a little touchy, but either our highest or lowest or deepest emotion that we have is when we experience Jesus, that Jesus in this worldview is simply limited to an emotion, that my pursuit of the Christian walk is essentially I want to have an emotional response to something. I'm going to call that something Jesus, okay? Another misconception is this, that Jesus is the highest moral idea. Some people think that <laughs> I represent Jesus best when I'm the most moral, and really that's what Jesus is about, is morality. You know, the, the what would Jesus do question, which is a fair question, but for those who are stuck on morality, the answer, what would Jesus do? The answer is, don't. <laughs> should I? Nope. Well, should I? Nope. Can I go? Nope. You know, would they allow me? Nope. I mean, just the answer is no, okay? That's what people think of when they think of Jesus as morality. And so when we think about Jesus, oftentimes we'll, as church people, kind of get stuck on the idea, the philosophical idea kind of of religion or of kind of good luck charm or morality or emotion. It's not that. Now, sometimes we get down and we think this guy was a real human being, flesh and blood man uh, from God. And, and, but sometimes we go here with it, that we believe Jesus is a teacher but he can be believed without being followed. And we're going to get into that a little bit more in one of our later sessions, essentially. But there are times when we say, yeah, Jesus, I'm, I'm good with him. He's a teacher, yes, taught good things, but I'm not really following him. In other words, people in this category are people who are professional churchgoers, but aren't actually Jesus followers. Okay? These are people who come to church regularly, or if not regularly, like on a special occasion like Easter or Christmas, and they say, yeah, I believe in Jesus' teachings, he was a good moral teacher, but in terms of my personal life, when it comes to me orienting my worldview around Jesus, you know, thinking about my work through the lens of what Jesus would do, or my family, or my marriage, or my dating world, or my money, you know, what I should do you know, physically, you know, all of that stuff, I'm not really thinking about that because I don't really follow Jesus. I just believe that he has good teachings, okay? So these are some misconceptions that people have in church about Jesus. Now, if you're not a church person, you know, you haven't been in church for a long time, here's some misconceptions you might have about Jesus. That Jesus and the church are the same. That when you think of Jesus, and you tend to think of the church. And some of you have been hurt by institutionalized religion. You've been hurt by organized religion. And you tend to think, I can reject the church, and therefore I'm just rejecting Jesus because the church is the embodiment of Jesus. Therefore, there you go. It's a misconception. Jesus and the church are not the same. Same thing is the next one. Jesus and Christians are the same. Some of you have been hurt by hypocritical Christians, of which maybe a year ago I taught a teaching here and saying that, hey, we're all hypocrites, so let's get used to it, okay? That's just the reality. I'm a hypocrite, you're a hypocrite. Let's kind of love each other anyway. That Jesus and the Christians are not the same. And thirdly here, that Jesus' historicity is a joke. There's, there's some thought, and it's not too hard to think, that if I'm going to believe in Jesus as a historical person, like, you just can't be smart and do that. You just have to commit, as I say, intellectual suicide. Like, you, can't, you can't actually believe. Because honestly, if we're, if we're honest, Christians believe some really weird things. Okay? It's just the truth. And one of those weird things is the resurrection, which we celebrate today. That is, that is weird. It just is. It is strange. It is very, very different. And so you've got to really kind of check your mental capacity at the door if you're going to believe in this Jesus person is kind of the non-church background. Now, for me, I want to kind of take you into my little world. If I could bring you, if you will, to my living room or in my home and, and just sit with you and talk to you about why do I believe in Jesus? Uh, many of you know my 
my, my own personal story, I'm not going to share all that. In my own family situation, I'm not going to share all of that here. But even within my own family, there are people who once would have believed in Jesus and have now, if you will, walked away from, from faith and salvation. So I'm not speaking to you from some kind of ivory tower, you know, disconnected from the real struggles of life. We have people in my own family um, who have walked away from things that they once claimed. Even people have been influential in my life. And so for me, if you were to ask me, why do you believe in Jesus? Here's a, a statement that has really kind of helped me get my mind around it. And here's a statement. I want to put it up because it can be kind of confusing. There are some questions whose answers escape me and other questions whose answers I can't escape. Okay, there's some questions whose answers escape me and other questions whose answers I can't escape. What that means is that there are some things about following Jesus, some things about Christianity as a whole. When I ask questions, I do not get answers, and I'm confused. Biblically, like, I don't really understand all of what's going to happen at the end of time. I'm just going to be honest with you. I, I don't understand all of how that will unfold. I don't even understand fully what really happened at the beginning of time. I mean, I understand Genesis and all that and read that, but I have a lot of good friends who are solid biblical scholars who teach differently than I even have been taught to think. And so there's a lot of questions I have biblically about origins of, of, of creation, about the flood. How did that really work, right? You know, was it really a literal sixth day? You know, is there any kind of little movement in there or not? And, you know, how are things really going to end up at the end times? You know, shouldn't you have it all worked out? I mean, you're the pastor. Shouldn't everything be lined up and, and neat and clean and orderly? There's some theological questions I have that I can't answer. You know, exactly how does predestination work and election and all that stuff? You know, what is that about? Does God really just kind of look out here and say, yep, you and you and you, and then not you, not you, not you? And is that really fair? And how can you even serve a God like that? I mean, I have questions about that theologically. I have ethical questions. You know, stem cell research, how does that really work and where are the limits of that? I have uh, questions ethically related to gender roles and all that kind of stuff that we're, we're processing as a culture today. I mean, there's a lot of questions, all right, whose answers escape me. Who I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Now, what I can do is I can just stop there and get hung up or I can go further and say, you know what, there are some questions whose answers I can't escape, I can't get away from. As many questions as I have, whose answers kind of go over here, there are some questions whose answers I can't escape. And for me, one of those questions whose answers I can't escape is really the question of who is Jesus and whether he was even around at all. And so I want to share that with you briefly, and then I want to jump into where we're going. So for, for me, why in the world do I come and land on that I believe Jesus was a historical person? Here's where I start, and, and I need to tell you this. My foundation is that I believe in the Bible. And I believe in the Bible as an authoritative document, an authoritative word from God. And I just want to share this with you briefly. You're going to have to enter classroom mode, okay? Can we do that for a minute? Okay, we're doing a little bit of history here. We're going to throw out some names here real quick. It won't, it won't be too painful, but just work with me. When I think about my own reasons for why I believe in Jesus, I go back and, and why I believe the Bible to be helpful and true. I go back to some of the ancient documents we have, and don't worry, we won't be here too long. But I'm just going to throw up a couple of... Um, documents here, and I can throw more to you personally if you really care about this. But here's a chart. Isn't this exciting? Easter Sunday, we've got a chart. You can't read it if you're too far back, but here we go. Um, on the far left here, if my head is not blocking everybody, you can see we have Aristotle sitting down on the bottom left of this chart, and he has a number five over him. What that means is that we have, historically, we have five copies of what Aristotle wrote. Um, and there's very few people who doubt that he wrote anything. There's very few people who doubt that he existed, but we have five copies of what Aristotle wrote, and also actually spans about 900 years from when Aristotle wrote to when he actually had copies made of what he did write, but we don't actually doubt the historicity of those copies or doubt 
that, uh, the teachings of what he said. So let's go to Plato over here. Plato had a lot more. He had seven. We have seven copies of what Plato wrote. There's not a lot of people saying, I don't believe in Plato. I don't believe in what he teaches. Yeah, it's fine. Sophocles, another guy, all right, and he, uh, he actually has a hundred. Um, we have a hundred copies of what Sophocles wrote. And these guys are, are, are dated. They're, they're pretty far back. But we have a hundred copies of Sophocles. A new guy, many of you have not heard of him. I don't really know a whole lot about the guy, to be quite honest with you. But I do know that Demosthenes, we have 200 copies of Demosthenes. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that wonderful? People are going to ask you, what do you do at Easter Sunday? You're going to say, we talked about Demosthenes. I'm telling you, you're going to do it. I'm going to tell you right now. Now, we go over to the New Testament, all right? When I think about the New Testament and why I believe that the Scriptures are actually a helpful foundation for thinking about who Jesus is, and here we go. We have 5,300 copies of the New Testament. In comparison to what we have in ancient history, it just doesn't compare. <laughs> it just doesn't compare. And there's, you can see it, right? There, there, we have an overabundance of historical evidence that we have the copies of the scriptures available to us. And the interesting thing with the scriptures is the time between the original writings and these copies that we have um, are between 30 and 200 years. Uh, compared to all of these other guys, Aristotle, Plato, Sophocles, Demosthenes, and many others who range from 700 to about 1400 years between when they actually wrote and when they were copied. Okay, so when I think about the historicity of the Bible, when I say I believe in the Bible, it's not just because I want to, it's not just because I think it's a good idea or I like the morality in the Bible, which is fine and good, but it's actually that there is a stronger foundation to it for me, and there has to be for me, that there's something I land on, and this is not all there is, but this is one of those pieces that I land on. Now, with that as my foundation, I needed to plant that there. With that as my foundation, I move forward and I say this about Jesus' historicity. And I ask the question, this Jesus man, was he actually here? Was he actually a legitimate guy or not? And I go to a couple of places. Number one, I go to this guy named Josephus, a first century historian, and really even non-Christian historians. These are people, in fact, there is no credible historian who will say that, that the man Jesus didn't exist. There isn't really debate as to whether Jesus was on the planet. There is debate as to who he was. But there is no historian who will say, yeah, he didn't walk the planet. It's just a question of who was he. Um, some of you know C.S. Lewis. He said the question is really, is he a liar, a lunatic, or is he Lord? Did he think he was the savior of the world and just lied about it? Um, or was he a lunatic, like really believing himself, but he wasn't? Or is he actually who he said he was? So the question t is not, even historically, even if you don't believe in Jesus, was he around? The question is, what do you do with him? Now, I want to press this through just a little bit, and then we'll move into our, our text for this morning. For me, when I come down to why then do I believe that Jesus is here, the foundation of the scriptures, the historicity of the person of Jesus, and then this. When I look at the early religious opponents, look at the Pharisees, for example, well, after they crucified Jesus, what was the fastest way to kind of crush the idea that Jesus was resurrected? It was to produce his body. I mean, that's all they needed to do. It is not a big deal. And ironically, with Jesus' body, after a crucifixion, most criminals were thrown in mass graves. In fact, that was kind of the standard practice, to be thrown in a mass grave. This little guy named Joseph of Arimathea in the New Testament, he claimed Jesus' body. And what that does for us is it gives us a paper trail that says you can go find in the early... Um, in the early church period, right, immediately following the resurrection, you can go to the, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea and find the body and say, look, he has not been resurrected. 
If you throw it in a mass grave, good luck. You can claim he was resurrected, and we're not sure which bones are his. But in this case, Joseph of Arimathea gives the early religious opponents a paper trail to follow and say, yeah, the disciples said it was stolen or whatever, but look, it's not there. What do we do with it? So the early Christian opponents, if you um, are opposed to Christianity or don't believe in it, I'm telling you, these guys were even more opposed, even more interested in saying, yeah, let's squash this rebellion early on, and they couldn't produce the body. To me, that's a pretty convincing reality. Secondly, I look at the disciples' lives being changed. I look at people like Peter, who if you, if you can picture Peter, this really um, impassioned disciple sitting around a campfire, and a, an intimidating junior high girl comes up to him, and she's like, are you one of Jesus' followers? And he's like, no, I'm not. You know, get away from me. And literally, right, that's what he does. I mean, that was the third time that he betrayed Jesus on the night of Jesus' trials. And Peter is just, he's walking away. He's pulling back. He's, no, no, that's not me, not me, not me. And then all of a sudden, I mean, in the book of Acts, Peter just goes ballistic. And he ends up being, according to best tradition we know, being crucified upside down in Rome under Nero's reign because he didn't want to be crucified the same way his Savior was. How does a man go from you know, walking away and pulling back from commitment to somebody to all of a sudden his life being completely transformed and given over to Jesus? It's, it's amazing. It's amazing to think about the practicality of that. Number four here, that the day of worship is changed from Saturday to Sunday. Can you imagine what it would take for me or, or anyone to convince us that we should stop meeting Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock and start meeting Monday mornings at 10 o'clock? How would that go for you with your boss? Would that be good? And not just here, but in Lancaster County, in the United States, around the world, let's just change the day of worship, right? The day of worship changed. On the basis of what? On the basis of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the crowds saw him, all right? We have, in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes about over 500 people saw him at one time. It's a pretty, that's a pretty big deal. And finally, this may be the most compelling of all, if you happen to have a sibling at all. Think about Jesus' historicity. His brother believed he was God. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine you know, what you need to do to convince your brother that you're God? It's pretty compelling, right? I mean, James, the brother of Jesus, becomes the leader of the Christian church. In the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, he writes as the leader of the Christian church, as a brother of Jesus, pointing people back to his brother to say, he is the Messiah. I mean, can you imagine what it would take to say, yep, my brother, he's God, right? You can't even say, like, he's good at something. I mean, let alone, he is God, all right, and this is what James did. And so for me, okay, if you're asking me, when I go back to wh what questions can't I escape, I cannot escape this question of who Jesus is, which is what anchors me to my faith, okay, which is what pulls me back of all the questions whose answers escape me, and I don't know about all the ethical stuff, and I don't even know all the theological or biblical stuff. There's a lot that I'm just like, I don't know, but we'll try our best with it. But there's some things, and one of those things is Jesus, that I look at that and I say, I just can't... I just can't get away from that. Now, you may or may not be there, and that's okay if you're not there yet, but I just want to tell you that's where I'm at, and that's why I'm going where I'm going in this series, because what happens next to me, if, what if, Jesus is actually who he says he was, and what if all these things are true about Jesus? What if, just kind of entertain the thought for a couple more minutes with me, what if Jesus is who he says he was? And then here's what I want to say this morning. If Jesus is who he says he was, if Jesus was actually God, then the resurrection changes everything about everything. 
if Jesus was actually God, and you may or may not believe that this morning, and, and you know, right now that's fine, just kind of entertain the thought and just put that in the, huh, I'll think about it category. Okay, what if? What if? If Jesus was actually God, then the resurrection changes everything about everything. So if you have your Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew around you. Now, 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament. We're going to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The New Testament is in kind of the right third of your Bible. And uh, there you will find 1 Corinthians kind of halfway through the New Testament. And by the way, if you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you today. You can take that, own that, run away with that, whatever you want to do. That's our gift to you guys today, all right? You should know what's happening here in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, Paul is writing, the Apostle Paul was um, a, uh, a follower of Jesus, a really kind of odd situation. Um, Paul began killing people, all right? If you think you've ever met someone who's opposed to Christianity, meet Paul. Paul was killing Christians, imprisoning them, and that was his mission. And then he, he had a, a, a moment of conversion that we call the Damascus Road experience on a road to Damascus. He, he was blinded for several days, and he came and turned to faith in Christ. And then he ends up writing stuff like this. And he's writing to a world in which they're fighting through believing that the resurrection is possible. Uh, and it's hard for us to get our minds around if you've been in church for a long time, but this is where he's at, is fighting through a world that believes that the resurrection isn't possible. And if we're honest, this is important for us because this is the world that you and I are born into, isn't it? Think about children for a minute. When, when, um, when a grandparent dies of a young child, don't we, if, you, if you're a follower of Jesus and you believe in the resurrection, isn't it normal for a child to think that's the end? That's it. Life's over. And in their eyes, it is over. It's the end. What the resurrection says is, no, it's not the end. It's just a new stage of life. And that is weird, right? That is different. That requires a step of faith. Because everything else ends like that, right? That's part of our ecosystem. When your car dies, you pray for a resurrection of the car? Some of you do, right? But no, most of you are like, no, it's over, it's done, right? When the pet dies, right, you don't pray for a resurrection of the pet, I mean, it's over. And so the same thing, especially from little people on up, right? When life, as we understand it, stops, we think that is actually a stop and it's over. And it takes some conditioning and some teaching and some training to say, no, that's not all there is, but it's not normal to think that way. It's very normal to think, Everything else just ends and stops when life in humanity ends, it stops, and it's over. And that's okay, it's just the way life is. However, it can be very depressing. If that's all it is, it can be very, very depressing. In fact, Solomon in Ecclesiastes wrote a lot about that. In fact, that was one of his primary depressing realities, is that, man, life is over, and it just seems like it stops, and that's kind of it. So if that is our worldview, that when, when someone dies, life is over, our life is full of hopelessness. There is no hope. I mean, what hope is there? There's none. There's none. There's n- what are you aiming for? Nothing. I'm just going to die. What's going to just going to die? In the New Testament, we read there that if that's the way it is, you should just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow. You die. And that's it. And it's over. And that's the end of it. Okay? Now, that's not the way that we believe it is. But here's how Paul writes to, uh, to the people in Corinth. All right? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 12. He writes this. He says, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, 
How can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? Well, easy, Paul. It doesn't seem like there's any resurrection of the dead, right? It doesn't seem normal. It doesn't seem natural. It seems off. It seems off-center. Then he goes on to verse 13. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. That is a problem, isn't it? So, verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. That's another good point. So without the resurrection, our faith is useless because it doesn't make any sense to believe in somebody who's delusional, does it? doesn't make any sense to believe in someone who's a lunatic, as C.S. Lewis would say. Verse 15, more than that, we're found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. Uh, So, in other words, our reputation is at stake here. We are found to be false witnesses. We have told people over and over, everywhere we go, that Christ has been raised and faith is worthwhile. And he's like, no, if, if the resurrection doesn't happen, then we are, we are um, staking our reputation then, and that's not a good thing. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, and this is a really important verse, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Not only is your faith futile, which we understand, but this is the hard part. You're still in your sins. So check this out. Think, think about this with me. If you, are, if you are in the faith and you're saying, I believe in Jesus, but the resurrection doesn't happen. First of all, you're following a lunatic, okay? And secondly, that makes all of your good work useless. I mean, for, right? You're still in, if you're thinking that your sins are forgiven when you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, but he has not been raised from the dead, not only is your faith futile, but you're still in, you're still in your sins. And you may as well just keep you just may as well keep sinning. Why be nice to the in-laws anymore? I'm wondering that myself. I better be careful they're serving me lunch today. Why do anything good anymore? Why keep coming to church? I mean, are you kidding me? There's other things to do on a Sunday morning. Seriously? I mean, the things that we do that we think are good and help us grow and all that in our faith, he's like, come on, you're, you're still in your sins. It's an absolute waste of your life. Your, your faith is futile, and you're still, you're still in your sins. And he goes on, verse 18. And, and also, not only you, but those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost also. If only for this life, this is a great verse, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we are to be pitied more than all men. Isn't that the truth? In other words, <laughs> you poor little people, you poor people, you poor people, Poor people who believe in Jesus. And your only hope for him is this life. And here's, here's where the convicting part is. Your only hope is that your life is a little morally better on this side of eternity because of Jesus. If your only hope is that your kids don't punch other kids in kindergarten or they grow up and they don't go to jail, you're going to be pitied more than anybody else. If your only hope is this world, you're going to be pitied. you be pitied. I mean, come on, follow somebody else who's more powerful than that. Are you kidding me? If Jesus isn't powerful enough to conquer death, why in the world would we follow him? Because we can do just about anything else. We can figure out how to forgive if we need to. We can figure out how to heal all kinds of stuff. But we can't figure out death. But if there's someone who has figured out death, I think he's worth following. But if he hasn't figured out death, pick somebody better to follow. Like find a self-help guru who's better than that. Are you kidding me? Someone who doesn't demand your life. Someone who isn't so inconvenient about this whole self-sacrificing. I mean, just seriously, follow somebody else because there's a lot of other good options out there. There's a lot of other good role models that you can put in front of your kids besides Jesus if 
he has been raised from the dead. I mean, just follow somebody who's more convenient. And it kind of lines up with your life a little bit more. and says, yeah, you're doing good. Come on, come on. Just try. Try a little bit harder. Keep going. And he says, if, if our only hope for Jesus is his life, you poor souls, you'll be pitied. You're foolish. You're going down a delusional path. It's foolishness. So, becomes a game changer if the resurrection happens, doesn't it? Becomes a game changer. Becomes a life changer if the resurrection actually happened. Because all of a sudden, infused into this life is this whole measure of hope that does not exist without the resurrection. Without the resurrection, we have got nothing. We have no hope. Come on, you know that, right? We've got no hope. But all of a sudden, if the resurrection happens, this is a, this is a game changer in a big way. And here's what Paul writes in verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made, and that last word is what? Alive. As in Adam, all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. In Adam, sin was introduced into the world, and consequently hopelessness was introduced to the world. And in Christ, the new Adam, hopefulness is infused into the world. And that changes everything. It changes everything about everything that you ever think of in this world. It changes everything about your approach to this life and the life beyond. It changes everything about how you see your relationships, how you see your money, how you see your fiance, how you see your husband and your wife and your boss and your employees and the people who work with you. It changes everything about hope in this world. And not just for this world, but the next. If Jesus came and conquered death. Skip down with me to verses 54 and 55 of 1 Corinthians 15. Because here's what is the net result of the resurrection. 54 and 55, Paul's writing there. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death will be swallowed up in victory. (laughs) Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? I mean, come on, death, what do you have now? What do you have now? If this actually happened, where are you at? Where is your power? Where, Where is it? Where is the sting? If in Christ all are made alive. And this is so powerful because here's a guy named Paul, and in a little letter that he wrote to the, book, to the church in Philippi, he writes this, and here you can kind of process his, his processing here on this, this issue. He says this, and he's wrestling with life and death issues. Paul writes over here in Philippians, he says, for me, this is a crazy statement, to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me, yet what shall I choose? What kind of question is that? Are you some kind of... Like, uh, I don't know, is, is, is he like semi-suicidal at this point? Does he just want to take his own life? I mean, he's literally asking the question. Can you imagine asking that question? Man, I just don't know if I should live or die because to die. And, and not because you're so depressed and disappointed that suicide is an option. Not because of that question. But because you know what? There's something better on the other side. And not just something better, something so much better. And so Paul's asking this question. That is profound to think about. And then he answers the question himself. He says here, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what I should do. I am torn. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Who talks like that? Seriously, who talks like that? 
It's better by far. It's better by far to part and go with Christ. And this is the impact of the resurrection. The resurrection changes everything about everything, about how we see the world, how we see our life, how we see our husband, our wife, our kids. Fiancés. Significant others. One another. Life and death. It changes everything about everything. If there was a Jesus who was a flesh and blood person that no historian will ever say didn't exist. The question is, who was he exactly? What did he do? If that Jesus was indeed God, if the Bible can be believed, if the early witnesses can be trusted, and if that Jesus, who's not just an idea, not just an emotion, not just a moral code, didn't just have principles that he spouted out, but was a real flesh and blood person like you and me, who also happened to be God in a bod. All right? Slow trickles of laughter on that one. All right. If he was that person, and he died and came back to life, then it changes everything for us. So here's what we want to say. So what? This statement here. If the resurrection happened, then there's hope for the things you thought there would never be hope for. And it, if you've been able to track with me to this point, and you're still awake and alive, this is it. This is what I want to say this morning. If the resurrection happened, then there's hope for the things that you thought there would never be hope for. That's a big statement if you allow it to sink down into your heart a little bit. There's hope for things that you thought there would never be hope for. And some of you this morning, if you're honest, you've got, you've got a couple of little pockets of hopelessness in your life. And it might be a hopelessness related to your marriage right now. Like, it's hopeless. <laughs> we are who we are, and it's not going to change, and so... There we go. And either for you that might mean I'm heading toward divorce or it might mean that I'm heading toward um, continuing to be married but isolated from my spouse and I should never expect anything more. This is just what it's going to be like. For the rest of our days, we're just going to kind of live out, play out the string and it's, that's it. The idea of a vibrant marriage or whatever, it's not really part of our plan. It just, you know, it is what it is. I'm just saying that the resurrection changes everything about everything. Because here's the problem. If we, if we say, I can't hope for that, basically what we're saying is, God's not powerful enough to take that. I mean, I know he can do the whole death thing, all right, that's fine. He's, he can conquer death, can you imagine? He can, he can predict his own death and come back to life, but he can't handle my situation at work. And he can't, he can't handle my marriage. He doesn't know how hard it is. He can't handle my, my singleness. He doesn't know how hard I've been trying to find the right person. He, he can't handle that. He can handle death. That's fine. It's not as big as my issue. And you see kind of how off that is? That's why it changes everything about everything. Because all of a sudden, where there is absolute hopelessness of death, there is hope in everything because of the resurrection. And so it leads to these questions. Number one, where do I need to hope again? Where do I need to hope again? Where do I need to say, you know what, the, the way that I've been looking at this, I, I have lost hope, if I'm honest, I've lost complete hope in my husband, my wife, in my fiance, my boyfriend and girlfriend, and my, my son and my daughter. I've, I've just lost hope in them. My roommate, I've lost hope. My roommate, my in-laws, no, not my in-laws. I've lost hope in this situation. Where have I lost hope? Where do I need hope again? Number two, 
Who do I need to forgive? Who do I need to forgive this Easter? Who do I need to forgive? Who do I need that I've been holding on to this bitterness for way too long? And, you, well, Tim, you don't know how hard it was. You don't know what they said. And you don't know the history of this. You don't know how often they. And you know what? You're right. I don't know any of that stuff. I, you're right. I don't know. I'm not you. I, I appreciate that. I'm just asking the question. Who do you need to forgive? If the resurrection happened, then it changes everything about everything. It infuses hope in places where there is no hope. Number three, who or what do I need to trust? Another difficult question. Who or what do I need to trust? This may be a person. This may be, this may be Jesus. This may be God the Father. This may be this matter of who you're trusting with your life and how you're walking. Is it self Salvation, I'm good enough, I can pull this off good enough, or is this a matter of trust and faith in God? And number four, what do I need to stop fighting? What do I need to stop fighting? I think some of you may have been fighting for a long time, pushing against, pushing, pushing, pushing against things that you kind of know are true, but you just don't want to be true. And you wish they were less convenient, or less inconvenient, excuse me. You just were pushing and fighting, fighting against things that you kind of know. At some point, you feel like, I need... I need to yield to that. I need to give to that a little bit. But your heart has been hardened. You're angry. You're bitter because your parents did this. And your sister did that. And your brother did that. And your pastor did that. And your boss and your coach did that and that and that. And people have been so hypocritical. It's been so hard. If the resurrection is true, it changes everything about everything. And it infuses hope where there never was hope. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? It pushes hope into places where it never existed before. If the resurrection happened, there is hope in places where you and I have never thought it before. Now, if Jesus has not been raised, our faith is futile, we're still in our sins, and we're to be pitied above all other people. It's foolishness. Find someone else to follow. Find someone else to believe. But, the resurrection happened, if the resurrection happened, then it changes absolutely everything about everything and pushes hope where hope never was before. Ask these questions. Where do you need to hope? Who do you need to trust? What do you need to stop fighting against? Where is it that you need to trust somebody or something? And join us again back here week two next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that we were able to stop and pull back and reflect on Jesus and the resurrection and the possibilities that exist because of something that, that happened about 2,000 years ago. Father, I pray for us this morning for those who want to hope but are having such a hard time because the pain is so deep which I can appreciate and who are going to be fighting against a willingness to hope and really the hard journey of what it means to hope again and trust again and move forward in relationships with people who they've kind of already written off I pray for us that we would be men and women of courage and vision who no matter what come back to the fact that we have a Savior, we have Jesus who's paid everything on the cross, who's come to the cross to die 
took all of our sin and all of our excuses and all of our pain and all of our suffering and paid everything on that cross and then died and predicted his death and then predicted his resurrection and pulled it off. And so we worship that Savior. And I pray that you give us courage where we just stop and say, nope, he can handle death and resurrection, but he can't handle my marriage. He can handle death and resurrection, but he can't handle my finances. He can handle death and resurrection, but not my singleness. Not my anger for my parents or religious leaders in the past. He can't handle that. I'll give him the resurrection, but not my issue. He's not that strong. Give us courage to hope again that Jesus, Jesus has paid it all. He's paid it all. And all to him we owe. In Jesus' name we pray.